previously on Here's What I've Heard. It's kind of weird when you don't see facts or newspaper articles or anything because you try to, you start to believe that they're still around somewhere and that it was a mistake or they gave you up or something like that. But you're kind of hoping it's not true, but it is, so. It was this doubt that led my dad to the library when he was in college, back to the microfiche archive. He left empty-handed, but over two decades later, he was the first person I called when I found the name of the driver that took his family's lives. And my dad was the first to know that his family wasn't Tommy's only victims. Because all those years we thought, we were told that there was only one person in that southbound car, a lone driver. But as it turns out, there were three. One week after Tommy Kaler's lawyer argued that there was insufficient evidence to prove his client was the one behind the wheel of the southbound car on November 6, 1965, Judge Wingrove dismissed the felony charges in the case. Tommy Kaler walked free from the courthouse. The Hanford Sentinel reported on the news, saying, Assistant District Attorney Philip Marut was already preparing a new complaint to be issued today, charging Kaler with the same four counts of felony manslaughter with gross negligence, plus three counts of felony drunken driving. This would mean a second preliminary hearing in Avenal Justice Court, with the District Attorney's Office again required to present evidence justifying Kaler's trial on the felony charges. In granting the motion for dismissal, Judge Wingrove criticized the preliminary hearing as, quote, sketchy and based on, quote, far-fetched inference. The Avenal Justice Court, he declared, must have been reading newspaper accounts of the accident, since the decision seemed to have been based on these rather than facts presented in court. Wingrove's ruling came after an argument by Willis Mevis, Kaler's attorney, that preliminary hearing had failed to even establish that Kaler was in fact driving when the accident took place, let alone establishing grounds for the charge of gross negligence. In a counter-argument, District Attorney Edward Verzel emphasized that preliminary hearing was not intended to prove guilt or innocence, but only whether evidence was sufficient to warrant trial. That the crime had occurred, said Verzel, was confirmed by death certificates of Mr. and Mrs. Gerald Klein of Avenal, their 13-month-old daughter, and 22-year-old James Hamilton of Hanford. Despite what his lawyers had argued in court, Tommy Kaler was behind the wheel that night on the Avenal cutoff. And initial newspaper reports of the accident, like this one from the Fresno Bee, published the following morning, reported that there were three people in his car, and that they were all injured, but alive. Kaler and two passengers, Larry Jones, 24, of Kalinga, and James Hamilton of Hanford, also were injured. All the injured were taken to the Avenal Hospital. Hamilton was transferred to a Fresno hospital after first aid. Although he was alive at the scene, James Hamilton, better known as Jimmy, died just hours later. 
born November 25, 1942, to Carl and Lucille Hamilton in Fannin, Texas, Jimmy was just a few months younger than my grandfather, Jerry Klein. Years ago, I was able to track down his niece by marriage, Barbara, and she told me that the family moved to California sometime between 1948 and 1952 in search of a better life. Jimmy was then raised in Hanford, where he met Tommy. The two became best friends. On November 3, 1961, just four years and three days before the accident, Jimmy married a young woman named Betty Jones. I don't know much about how they met, but like my grandparents, they were very young and very in love. On their wedding day, Jimmy was just 18 and Betty hadn't yet turned 16. The couple stayed in Hanford after they wed, with Jimmy taking a job at Standard Oil, just like Jerry and many of the other young men living in that area at the time. Over the next four years, they had two children, a boy and a girl, in that order. In an email, Barbara told me that, quote, the girl at the time was the same age as your aunt. She means, of course, that when the accident occurred, Jimmy's baby daughter was the same age as Teresa Robin. As he had promised a month and a half earlier, Assistant District Attorney Philip Marut took another stab at taking Kaler to trial in March of 1966. But this time, he came prepared with more evidence. The Hanford Sentinel reported, A preliminary hearing will resume at 10 a.m. Tuesday in Avenal Justice Court for Thomas Leon Kaler, 23, who faces four counts of felony manslaughter and three counts of felony drunken driving in a traffic accident which took place on Avenal Cutoff last November 6th. To appear Tuesday to testify is Dr. Joseph A. Ryan of Avenal, who will be asked to tell of injuries suffered by those he examined following the accident. Killed in the crash were Gerald Klein, 24, his wife, Linda, 21, and daughter, Robin, 13 months. A passenger of Kaler's, James Hamilton, 22, died later in a Fresno hospital. The injured include two of Klein's sons, Jerry Lynn and Paul, and Larry Jr. Jones of Kalinga, another of Kaler's passengers. Larry Jr. Jones wasn't just a buddy of Tommy and Jimmy. He was also the brother of Betty Jones Hamilton, which made Jimmy Hamilton his brother-in-law. Born April 12, 1941, to Arkansas natives Chester and Rosie Jones, Larry's family also migrated to California in the 1950s, settling first in the Ventura area, and then later to Kings County. Barbara says that her uncle Larry was, quote, always a problem for my grandparents and family and that he, quote, started drinking at a young age. I have limited information about Larry and his family life, but I believe he may have been married and was the father of one small child, a girl in 1965. I've tried to reach out to multiple family members and associates of Larry to confirm this information, but have not gotten a response. Larry died around 2010, and after exchanging several emails with Barbara, she suddenly went dark. At first, Barbara told me that she was happy to answer my questions. She even said that she contacted Betty, Jimmy's wife, and that Betty wanted me to have answers. Barbara also was in touch with Tommy Kaler's niece, and I thought perhaps she would connect us by phone or email. This was towards the beginning of my research, and I had started to consider whether or not I wanted to share the story with the world. 
As soon as I mentioned that I might share the stories of these victims publicly, I stopped hearing from Barbara. Her last email to me was from July of 2011, almost seven years ago. I tried to follow up with her a few times in the months that followed and apologized if I had done something to offend her. If I had, I wanted to make it right. I also considered the possibility that she was ill or had passed away, but she was still active on the genealogy website we'd first connected through. She just simply wasn't responding to me anymore. Barbara had ghosted me. She ghosted me hard. I took a long break after that. It wasn't until recently that I started trying to find members of Jimmy, Larry and Tommy's families. One of my first connections during the second go-round was with Nelda, Jimmy's sister. We exchanged a few messages on social media, but were ultimately unable to coordinate an interview. She did confirm what Barbara had told me, however. Jimmy had two small children, and his death was very tragic for their family. She added that he was, quote, very much loved by his family. Even though things with Barbara and Nelda didn't work out, I was determined to hear the story from the other side. I spent countless hours digging through directories, cross-referencing birth certificates, and pulling out every trick I had up my sleeve when it came to solving a somewhat genealogical mystery. After a helpful tip from a source and some expert Googling, I finally found someone who would talk to me. Tommy Kaler's sister. for Carol? You're looking for Carol? Who's this? Hi, right, my name's Courtney. Courtney? Yeah. Uh, she's outside right now. Uh, she should be coming back in in a second. Okay. Uh, let me go out and see if I can get her. Okay. Hello? This is Carol. Did you get like a phone call or what was that like? Oh, see, I was so young when when this all happened. I was only like sixteen. Oh, okay. Myself, you know, they left here from Hanford, going to Avenel, okay, another town, you know, and between just before they was getting into Avenel, there's like a little mountain area that it's not, you know, it's kind of curvy. Well, my brother and their friends was kind of like bar hopping, drinking, and. They took off to go over there, which they shouldn't have on the road, but mm-hmm. they did. And they came up on this, you know, this curve. And I don't know if my brother actually, you know, like hugged the curve or what, but they kind of, kind of like hit head on. Other than that, I couldn't really tell you much more than that. Okay. Um, but that's that's basically how it happened. You know, uh, he he was in the wrong by drinking. He caused the accident and he killed. Like I said, you know, a family. Mm-hmm. But the two little boys that was in the back seat, they, you know, they, they survived, I heard. 
I can't help but notice that she says this last part as if it should comfort me in some way. And I get the position she's in. When someone you love does something terrible, it can be a hard thing to reconcile. I don't know much about her family or her relationship with Tommy, but I imagine, and gather a bit from the way she answers my questions, that she feels somewhat defensive when this topic comes up. I can't say that I wouldn't feel the same if I were in her shoes. So I tried to make it clear as we talked that I didn't call her to lambast Tommy's relatives for his mistakes. Instead, I asked her what he was like as a person. Oh, he was a real nice person. I mean, you know, he, he had a family of his own, in fact, you know. Mm-hmm. He had a, let's see, he had a son. He had a son and a daughter, just a baby daughter. Okay. And, the, and Brian, which was his son, um, I guess Brian was probably... It just happened in 65, Brian was ha- uh, 63, so Brian was like two years old, and then Sissy, we called her, she was uh, maybe eight months old or five months old, something like she was born in June, this happened in November, mm-hmm. so, you know, she was five months old. Two children, just a little younger than those two little boys in the back seat that survived. Larry Jones also survived. I asked Barbara what his life was like after the accident and she told me that he continued to drink. She said, quote, I remember after the accident, I couldn't understand why he didn't stop. I was only 13, but I could see and feel the loss. I just couldn't understand how he could drink after everything that had happened. Uncle Larry suffered severe head injuries and had two metal plates placed in his head. He almost died. I thought, how could he forget when he looks in the mirror? He can see the scars on his forehead. I loved him and enjoyed being around him when he wasn't drinking. He died in 2010. It wasn't an easy death. I hope I'm not letting you know more than you wanted to know. My intentions are not to upset you, but only to help. End quote. As for the young wife and children that Larry's brother-in-law, Jimmy, left behind, Barbara said, quote, My aunt stayed in California. She remarried and had a daughter. She moved out of the area for about 10 years. When the marriage ended in divorce, she moved back to the Hanford area to be near her family. Jimmy was the love of her life. When he died, she was devastated. They had been married for four years when the accident happened, but for those four years, she lived for Jimmy. I don't think she ever got over the loss of him. Love's never been the same for her. I remember for a while after his death, she would always say she wanted to be with Jimmy. The children had no memory of him. They grew up asking questions about their dad. Jimmy and my aunt's son was in an accident in 1992. He was in a coma for a year and died in 1993. My aunt has had a lot of tragedy in her life, not of her own doing. I've always worried about her. She lives about three miles from me and I see her often. Her daughters live in the area. With their help, we all keep an eye on her. When you made contact with me, I called her up to ask what she thought about answering your questions. She said to help you in any way I could. That you and your family have a right to answers. She has always wondered about your dad and uncle. She knows it must have been hard to grow up without their parents. She still feels the loss and pain of what happened that night. I know it's hard for her to talk about because she relives everything over again." End quote. After a failed first attempt to get Tommy Kaler charged with the felonies associated with the accident, the district attorney's office finally proved to Judge Wingrove that he was, indeed, the man behind the wheel that fateful night on the Avenal Cutoff. 
And so, Tommy Kaler would finally be made to answer for his crimes. Like Jimmy, Tommy was just a few months younger than Jerry. Born October 21, 1942, in Oklahoma, to Dennis and Joy Kaler, Tommy was the second youngest sibling in a family with seven children. When he was very young, Tommy's father died, and Joy decided to move the family to Hanford, California. There, she married a man named Ted Lane and had two more children. It's amazing to me how many similarities are found between Jerry's life and the lives of the men in the southbound car. Betty and Jimmy's youthful romance practically mirrors Linda and Jerry's. All four of the men were born between 1941 and 1942, and three of them worked for Standard Oil. Had their paths crossed under different circumstances, they might have even compared their best horror stories of what it's like to live with four or more siblings under one roof. But the thing that Jerry, Jimmy, Larry, and Tommy have most in common is that they all moved to California as the result of a dream. A dream that things could be different and better and fruitful. But he was out just being reckless with, you know, some friends and they got careless and we got to drinking and then he decided to go over to Avenel, which I had a sister and a brother-in-law that lived over there and I think that's where they were going. Oh, okay. And, you know, and this accident happened, mm-hmm. which is a bad, I mean, there's been a lot of accidents that ha- that have happened there. It's called the Avenel Cutoff. Mm-hmm. And it kind of makes a kind of a, you know, like a, a windy curve. So, you know, if you're not really paying any attention, you know, there's been a lot of accidents there. So, but my brother was in the wrong by, you know, drinking. And I believe he had to have been on the, you know, on the other side of the, the road in order for them to have had, you know, a head-on collision. Mm-hmm. Other than being a person, you know, his character, all that, I mean, you know, he was a good father. Um, other than maybe, you know, he liked to drink. Carol wasn't the first family member of Tommy Kaler that I spoke to about that night. Remember what I mentioned earlier about that tip I received that led me to her? It came from Tommy's ex-wife, Rose. And while Carol maintains that Tommy was a good person, Rose tells a much different story. He was a very mean person. That's next time on Here's What I've Heard. Here's What I've Heard is produced by Courtney Abood and Craig Brown. Musical direction was provided by Julia Cannon, featuring Bobby Steinfeld on piano. Big thanks to our patrons. To be a patron and gain access to exclusive content, visit patreon.com slash here's what I've heard. 